Pastor Xavier Reese and the essence of true belief. David, knowing Bathsheba was the wife of another man, took her as his own, committed adultery. His conscience was not enough. Peter, knowing Jesus was God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, denied him three times. His conscience was not sufficient. You must be born again, or you cannot honor God. Your conscience is not sufficient. It will betray you and me every time. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. How far does God's love stretch? Well, the Bible clearly states that God's love is for the entire world, but it also clearly defines the special place Israel has in his heart. Today, Pastor Xavier digs deep into this truth and how this affects believers everywhere. Let's join him in the book of Romans, chapter 9, for today's lesson, Lovingly Committed to Israel. The Apostle Paul has proclaimed the gospel of grace to the Roman Christians, making it clear that both Jew and Gentile must come to God on the same basis, faith in Jesus Christ. In the first eight chapters, which are categorized as doctrinal, Paul has said some hard things about the Jew. And he knew that they would be accusing and attacking him. So Paul begins the national and prophetical section focusing on Israel. Chapter 9, 10, and 11. There are different views as to this section regarding Israel and the promises of God in these three chapters. Some have viewed uh, these three chapters as a unit in itself with no relationship to the preceding or the following chapters. I think this is a great mistake. It ignores the very foundational proclamation of the thesis in chapter 1, verse 17, which it says to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. It also ignores the historical tension between the Jew rejecting the gospel that the Gentiles had accepted, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this section is long coming since Paul has addressed the Jews throughout the first eight chapters. Again, chapter 1, verse 17, he puts the emphasis on the Jew first in terms of time than the Gentile following. Not that they're superior, but in terms of time, the Messiah was sent to them. In chapter 2, 17 through 29, he deals with the privilege of the, the right of circumcision, but they had abused that and misunderstood that. God says, I'm after the circumcision of the heart. So not everybody who's a Jew who's circumcised is a Jew or is Israel. And then in chapter 3, 21 through 26, he mentioned the law and the prophets were a witness to the righteousness of the gospel. So it's nothing new. What he's declaring, the prophets and the Old Testament proclaim, witness to him. And then in chapter 4, 1 through 8, he proved that the faith of Abraham was based on the promises of God, and he simply believed by faith, and his faith was accounted as righteousness. And so he declared that all men, women, Jew, Gentile, are justified in Christ Jesus. No other way, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Now having said all this, the present section is the development of his opening statement. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. In order to show that it is God's, how Israel would fit into God's plan through the gospel. Because the Jews question as we move through these chapters. They say, well, if, if God elected them, and if God chose them, then why aren't they saved? Legitimate question. You got to answer it. Let me just give you a breakdown of the three chapters. Real simple. 
Chapter 9 deals with the past election of Israel by God's divine sovereign choosing and purposes, both which rejected by Israel. Okay? Chapter 10 deals with the present rejection of the gospel by Israel, having human responsibility and free will to respond to God. And then chapter 11 deals with the future restoration of Israel, for Israel's rejection is not total nor final, for all true Israel will be saved once the fullness of the Gentile comes in. He calls it the remnant. So you have the past election, the present rejection, and the future restoration. That's what these three chapters give us, ladies and gentlemen. And don't miss the emphasis through this thing. The emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Never neglecting human responsibility. The context is national Israel, not individual. We're going to see Jacob and Esau. They're not individuals. In the context he's talking about is the nation the nation of Edom, the nation of Israel. This is not for individuals. Calvinists will use this for predestination for individuals. This is national that he's talking about. The nation of Israel, not individual. You've taught, if I taught you anything 30 years, it's context, 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 right? Now, we're going to look at verse 1 through 5. But let me give you the breakdown of the three chapters. Real simple, three divisions, so you understand in your mind. It's a progressive development. That explains how Israel fits into the plan of God through the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. The section has an opening proclamation of Paul's love for Israel. From verse 6 of chapter 9. All the way to chapter 11, verse 32. That's the body of the section. He'll deal with the different aspects of it. Okay? And then the third section is at the end of chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. This is the closing doxology. How do you write a letter? Introduction, body, conclusion. He's got it there. All right? When we get into the body, we'll break it all up and we'll look at the specifics. So these three chapters contain 30% of its quotes from the Old Testament. 40% are from Isaiah. The majority of these quotes in Romans are from the Old Testament, which are found in these three chapters more than 50%. Paul will continue the dialectical style with questions, rhetorical questions, arguments to bring about truth. And so, let me read here verse 1 through 5. I'll tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continue grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternal, blessed God. Amen. And so here the Apostle Paul gives his genuine proclamation of his love for Israel, which is verified by three facts. First, in verse 1, Paul's oath regarding Israel, his oath. Secondly, verse 2 and 3, Paul's passion regarding Israel. And then 4 and 5, Paul's list of privileges regarding Israel. Let's begin here, Paul's oath regarding Israel. Look at verse 1. The oath of Paul is based, first of all, declaring the truth in Christ. Underline that. I tell the truth in Christ. The personal pronoun, Paul, I. He's speaking about himself. He is the one that's being accused and attacked. Once again, we find ourselves in God's divine courtroom in the book of Romans here. 
The Jews probably were accusing him. He's a bitter Jew. He, you know, he's a renegade. He just hates us. So there was a lot of stuff going on. You remember that when Paul came into Jerusalem, after a third missionary journey in Acts 21, 21, he went to the temple. They accused him of bringing a Gentile in. They almost killed him. Okay? He was held there as a political prisoner, and then he appealed to Caesar, and he was sent to Rome. Now, notice the particular words Paul is going to declare to them are based upon truth. The word truth is aletheia. It means truth on any matter being considered. Reliable, trustworthy words. And the truth that Paul is going to talk about is the salvation of the Jew. The Israel. Their election, their rejection, and their restoration. Now notice the person Paul pledges his oath, as I said, is by Christ. Preposition. In Christ. He qualifies this. He's the source of the witness looking upon him, hearing his words, in order to validate the truthfulness and reliability of his words. The title of Christ is, you know, is Christos. It's the Messiah of God, the deliverer of Israel, according to the Hebrew scriptures. He's talking to Israel right now, focusing on them. The Messiah is, is greater than all. The Messiah is their savior. The Messiah had come, but they missed him. And he sits at the right hand of the Father now. Paul's heart's broken, as we're going to see. Again, this preposition is found 70 times in Roman. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. If you know Ephesians, that's the key preposition also. In Christ. If you see yourself apart from Christ, you're in trouble. In Christ. Again, Paul knew that the Jews were accusing him. They were antagonistic towards him. And perhaps after these eight chapters too, as they've heard the opening phrase and some of the touching attacking Abraham, they're saying, oh, I confirmed that. He is against us. You understand? So he has to clear this up. How is it that Israel fits if we are elected? And so Paul was uh, addressing the threefold evidence of his truthfulness. Now notice secondly here. The oath of Paul is based on his testimony that he's not lying. I am not lying. The words of Paul are to be judged by his past life. Which was exemplary as a Hebrew of Hebrew. Pharisee of Pharisees. Surpassing the law. Surpassing his contemporaries. Blameless, he said. Not that he was, but that he was looking at only whole, keeping it exterior, not interior. Remember? All right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, he gives that record there. Now, the words of Paul were to be judged by his present life also in his service to God. By both Jew and Gentile since his conversion on the road to Damascus. You read chapter 9 of Acts all the way to 28. Incredible man. Things he went through. He always went to the Jew first, then the Gentile. He was stoned, he was insulted, he was in prison, all kinds of stuff. And what's he saying right here? I love Israel. Wow. They hate me. I love them. He attests to not lying four other times in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one, when Paul was listing all the sufferings that he went through, he says, The God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Galatians 1.20, when Paul said that he saw only Peter and James after he went from Damascus to Jerusalem, he says, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Then in 1 Timothy 2.5, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. You see, he calls God to be the bearer of record, to record his witness. Over and over again, even other places. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, he says, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul. 
God is a witness. He's hearing. He's seeing him. We speak before Christ in, before God in Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. Always before God. Always before Christ. For God is my witness, he says in Philippians 1, 18. He charges Timothy before God. And the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21. The very awareness of the Christian. Before I used to do say, now I am to be very aware that God hears, sees everything. Whether I pledge an oath or not, doesn't matter. There's no secrets in heaven. (laughs) He lives by the principle of truthfulness, even as Paul told Timothy. What an example he was to that young man. We're to be an example to those of our peers and those who are younger than I. What it is to be a Christian. Now notice also that the oath of Paul is based on a clear conscience by the examination of the Holy Spirit. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. The conscience is God-given to every individual that's ever born into this world. To know right from wrong, good from evil. Therefore, man is without excuse, Paul told us in Romans 2. 14 and 15. You remember when you were first a little kid, you know, you did something wrong, you looked around, where'd that come from? You stole that candy bar, your heart's going boom, 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 boom. Where'd that come from? But you did it long enough, pretty soon you were a pro. It didn't bother you. You calloused your conscience. You messed it up. I messed it up. The word conscience is made up of two words, a compound word. The first is with and the other one is knowledge or to know. Literally science. And so it's the idea of being one In life with the knowledge that you possess. When we don't do that, we call people hypocrites, right? Liars. He just said, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Double to emphasize the truthfulness of it. And then now a third, my conscience. And he doesn't rely on his conscience for his own examination, but by the Holy Spirit, who is God. 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, Now to the end of the commandment is agape love out of a pure heart and a good conscience And from sincere faith. Now, due to the fact that man has fallen, who is a sinner, his conscience is not sufficient to guide him through life. You see? Our conscience is valid only if it's guided by the Holy Spirit of God. We must be born again. Our conscience must be recalibrated to God's word. Because we scar it. We sear it. We ignore it. We indoctrinate it with human society. The shrink tells you, that's not sin. That's just religion trying to make you feel guilty. Everybody does that. So he lowers your guilt complex. And then he takes your check for $200 for the hour. Our conscience as Christians cannot be dependent as the ultimate source for self-examination or truthfulness. For God alone knows the thoughts of man. In fact, Psalm 139, verse 2 and 23 and 24 says that God knows them from their origin. I don't know them till they get there. So we cry out, search me, Lord, know if there's any wicked way within me. You understand? 139, 2, the psalm, it says he knows them from their origin. I don't know my thoughts till they get there. That's pretty scary. Now notice the conscience of Paul was fully aware of his being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, thereby being inerrant and infallible. As he's speaking, the Holy Spirit is the one that's revealing all this. First Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, 20 and 21, that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. Strike out the word interpretation, bad translation. Of no, of no impulse or origin, personally, 
but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So what you have in your lab, ladies and gentlemen, is God's inerrant, infallible word. The value of an oath is that it is based upon something more honorable and greater than myself, as the Bible was before in a courtroom. You put your hand on it and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. No longer do they do the truth. They affirm their truth. I just affirm that it's true. That's why everybody's a liar today. Can't trust nobody. The believer is to tell the truth, even when it is not to his own benefit. Too often in today's Christian world, there's a little difference between Christian and non-Christian. We have culturalized Christianity, trivialized honesty and integrity. Truth is not relative, but it's objective. Truth is truth. A lie is a lie. I will validate the truth of my words by my character lived out in life. If not, my actions will cancel my words. Listen to Proverbs 3, 3 through 4. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. The vertical is first. I must please God and obey God first. Then the horizontal will fall into place. I never reverse it. The believer is to be transformed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Not being fashioned to this world system, but being uh, transformed, metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is a good accepting the perfect will of God. He'll get to that in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And he begs them to present their body. That's the conclusion. Knowing all that he's done, what can we do? This is the least we can do. A conscience can be defiled, can be seared. A conscience can be weak. First Corinthians 8, 1 Timothy 4, 2. We are to have a good conscience, a pure conscience, living up to the knowledge of God's word. That's the only way we can have it. Acts 4.23 and 1 Timothy 3.9 is by recalibrating my mind. I've told you often, you guys have these big trucks. You put these big tires on it. And you go down the highway. You go down the freeway. It says 65. You're not really going 65. You're going faster or lower. It depends what kind of tires you put on there. You've thrown off the calibration from the factory tires. So when the cop pulls you over and he says you were going so and such and such and you're looking at your speedometer, you're not lying purposely, but you're wrong because you've messed with the calibration. You've thrown it off. God reveals in the scriptures that the conscience is not enough to guide man through life. It's not enough to resist temptations. It's not sufficient to overcome struggles of sin nature or anything else. Adam and Eve failed to live up to their conscience of the knowledge of God and they disobeyed him. That was even before the fall. <laughs> Peter, knowing Jesus was God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, denied him three times. His conscience was not sufficient. You must be born again, or you cannot honor God. Your conscience is not sufficient. It will betray you and me every time. The genuine proclamation of Paul's love was marked by his oath regarding Israel. He loved Israel. He's not lying. Notice secondly, verse 2 and 3, Paul's passion regarding Israel. In verse 2, the passion of Paul is marked by the great sorrow of his heart for his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews here. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. The intensity of Paul's sorrow is described as great. The word is megas. It is used in various ways of external forms and things that, that, that magnify rank or, or size or whatever it may be. The, the phrase that used to be used is megabucks. I don't know if they use it anymore. But megabucks means you have a lot of money. Because that's the word. 
The word in this case is used to indicate the intensity and its degree of the affection and emotions of sorrow of both heart and mind. Paul used to be like them. He was enemy number one for the Christian. He killed Christians. He imprisoned Christians. He caused Christians to blaspheme. He knows where they're at. His heart's broken. They hate him. He loves them. Been there? You used to hate Christians. Perhaps you used to make fun of them. Then you got saved. Now you know. You can see both sides of the street. The non-believer only sees a one-way street. The indication of his plan is a reality. I mean of his pain. Not mere exaggeration. Not speaking in hyperbole here. This is real. Paul identifies his pain first as sorrow. Which means pain, grief, annoyance, affliction with the idea of consuming grief. You ever been there? Some of you have lost daughters and sons. Mothers and dads. It's a grief to our heart, is it not? Friends. The word is used of the disciples of Jesus when he found them sleeping for sorrow in Luke twenty-two forty-five. The word is used of enduring grief of, for conscience sake in 1 Peter two nineteen. Then notice Paul identifies his pain, secondly, as grief. The word means consuming grief. The word appears only one other time in the New Testament for the many consuming afflictions that people bring upon themselves by riches in 1 Timothy 6.10. The double description focuses on the intensity of his pain and the continuance of it. Notice the inclination of this pain was constant here in his heart. The word continual, unintermitted, unceasing, without leaving off. The word is found only one other time, as Paul uses it to indicate his unceasing remembrance of Timothy in his prayers in 2 Timothy 1.3, just before he's going to be beheaded, his last will and testament. Now, we can all identify with burdens over those who are lost and our families, our friends. Because we used to be there. You understand? Now, some of them were our best friends. They've turned against us. But we understand that. That doesn't make us hate them. That doesn't make me feel bitter against them. I understand. I used to be stupid and blind. I know. The indicated reason for such sorrow and grief is clearly stated. They had not sought. As he goes on, chapter 9, verse 32. They had not sought salvation by faith, but works. That's his pain. In chapter 9, 33, they stumbled at Christ. In 10, 2, they had zeal, but not according to knowledge. In 10, 3, they were ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, therefore not submitting to the righteousness of God. What pain in the heart of Paul. Now notice verse 3. The passion of Paul. Is marked by being willing to be a curse from Christ for the salvation of the Jew. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. The proclamation of Paul regards his love for Israel. His love for the Jews throughout his life till now. But now his love is greater knowing Christ. Because again he sees both sides of the street. In Romans 10.1 he says, Brethren... My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That should be the heart of every one of us who are Christian. That our friends, our loved ones, whoever we may confront, that they be saved. Who, who in the world wants people to go to hell? 
Only a religious person will want to go to hell. Only a non-believer will want to go to hell. If you're a Christian, you wouldn't want anybody to go to hell. His passion is for the lostness of the nation. He's bearing his heart. Pastor Xavier Reese, with a reminder of the long reach of God's love, today on Simple Truths. And if you'd like a copy of today's study on CD, ask for Lovingly Committed to Israel. It's available for only $4. This CD will include the complete message as it was originally delivered. Once again, the title to ask for is Lovingly Committed to Israel, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com